1: So there are a million things Lin-Manuel Miranda hasn't done, like win an Oscar, but just you wait, just you wait. Welcome to Close Up. I'm Kelly Carter, and I know you really wanted to hear that at the top of this podcast. Okay. (laughs) That was horrible and really cheesy, and I promise I won't ever do that to you again. But can you blame me? When you've gifted the world a genius piece of art like Hamilton, you gotta quote it, and you gotta sing it. And because you're listening to this, I already know you're a Lin-Manuel Miranda nerd, and that you, like me, rock out in your car with the windows rolled up, singing at the top of your lungs, like you actually have the pipes of Renee Elise Goldsberry, but you know you don't. Or when you're in the comfort of your living room, all alone and no one else is around, you give that deep bend in your legs like you're the second coming of Leslie Odom Jr. Of the trade how the sausage gets made. We just that No. just me? When no one else is in the room where it happens. In any case, I for sure know that you know a lot about the genius of Lynn Manuel Miranda. But believe it or not, in the conversation that you're about to hear, he dives in on some things that I haven't even heard him give before. For starters, his first audience is his kids and he tests out the material with them years before the world actually hears it. But they have to know the ins and outs of what he calls the toddler NDA. You get it. Because otherwise, they'd go singing their favorite Encanto song all over the school bus or the playground, kind of like the rest of us would. But binding legal agreements aside, imagine that this guy is your dad anyway. Everything gets turned into some sort of a beautiful, fun, sing-along musical. You'll hear exactly what I mean in the interview. Lynn also doubles down on what making art really is. The responsibility that comes with representing for Black and Brown people. And yes, he talks about what it might be like to actually win that Oscar for the work he did on Encanto this season, which would make him the next EGOT winner. And as we always do on Close Up, you'll go inside my group chat with my buddies. Today, I've got Matt Wolf and Miriam Spritzer. That's coming up later. But first, here's my chat with Lin-Manuel Miranda. I want to start here. The We Don't Talk About Bruno Hive was very upset on Oscar nominations day and I get it because that song is ubiquitous and it's the highest charting song from a Disney animated movie in 26 years but most folks didn't understand the process of submission and they don't get why you did not submit it so that it could be eligible for an Oscar. Please, for the love of God, speak to the Hive. Why didn't you pick that song? (laughs)
2: can we just pause to acknowledge how amazing it is that there's a song with a hive (laughs) um and and it's real that's real um you know it's been amazing to see and, and really one of the great surprises and joys of my life to see this Ensemble number with uh, characters that are not the main character, each with a solo, with lots of overlapping vocal parts, that kind of doesn't make sense unless you see the movie Yes, have this incredible joyous success. Do
3: you understand?
2: It, it really is um, like a total shock and surprise to me in the best way because that's always one of my favorite moments mm-hmm. in the musicals i love i think about one day more uh in les mis i think about you know the you know and it's beginning to snow for rent. Rand- no room at
1: the holiday and oh no and it's beginning to snow
2: i love when that happens in musicals um but you know 96,000 was not the hit from <laughs> In the Heights, but that's the song where that happens. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just, it's been really, uh, it's been really thrilling. But, you know, I think when you're submitting a song to the Oscars for consideration, your, your only goal should be what represents the themes of this movie. Because you're asking for a, a part to stand in for the whole. Um, and for us, Dos Oruguitas is the kernel, uh, it's the trauma, and it's the wonder of this family and their gifts all in one sort of musical moment.
3: No se
2: So that's why we we chose that to be represented. But listen, I love the way Renzi sings, Rats so long is back just as much as everybody else does.
1: (laughs) You know, honestly, to me, um, that speaks to perhaps just how excellent of a songwriter and creator you are. There's so much excellent work. How can a guy choose? You know, that said, is there a line or a rhyme or a phrase that you've written that when it came out, it even took you aback at how perfect or genius it was? And if so, what was that?
2: <laughs> oh gosh, no, I, it's never about perfect or genius. It's really about, um, is that, it's because when you're when you're writing a song, you're always crystallizing intangibles. Does that make sense? You're trying to give feeling to a moment that speech alone can't give. And so for me, I always find myself very moved when the right words sing on the right melody. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it always it, there's always a moment in every song where I'm like, oh, that feels true. Um, honesty and truth give me goosebumps. You know, in Isabella's song in this movie, it's when she goes,
0: I'm so sick of pretty, I want some
2: so sick of pretty. I want something true, don't you? That kills me because that, to me, is the kernel of what she's been struggling with. She's been in this kind of gilded cage, and all she wants is something honest. And uh, you know, for um, for surface pressure, which I know has made so many older siblings uh, feel seen. Uh, The line that gets me is, give it to your sister, your sister's older, give her all the heavy things you can't shoulder. Uh, Because I have an older sister, and I know what a raw deal you get as the older sibling. Uh, Your parents make all the mistakes, their first mistakes with you, um, and you're expected to be a model citizen uh, to your younger siblings. And I I catch myself when I find myself doing that as a parent with my uh, oldest son. And so, um, you know, that line really kind of hits somewhere uneasy and true about the, the things we ask older siblings to do that you wouldn't dream of asking the baby to do.
1: I love hearing this, you know, you break down that lyric because I was going to ask, Do you have a favorite lyric that you've ever written when you look at the totality of the work that you've given us over the years?
2: No, it's always kind of, it's just sort of moments. Um, You know, when I think back on Hamilton and I found Burr's, truth you know when he says if there's a reason i'm still alive when everyone who loves me has died Mm. i'm willing to wait for it and understanding his caution Mm. and his pulse rate i understand everything about that guy uh with that lyric
1: um
2: that that his patience is born of incredible pain Mm. and that those are always sort of the moments that that you're that you're chasing and i I think that it's funny because uh, somebody once said um there are the songs that you catch and there are the songs that you like dig for yeah (laughs) you know every so often you catch inspiration and you're able to pin it to the page Mm. but more often than not you're kind of you're playing at the piano you're trying stuff and it's about finding what doesn't work what doesn't work until you find the nugget the one nugget that you can kind of build on um and and so you're proud of those but then you know we don't talk about Bruno happened in like a second. That song wrote fast. Really? Um, I understood so clearly what the song needed to do. I wrote that thing in like a week and a half. Um, And so there's also something about, it doesn't feel effortful um because it wasn't. The mandate was really clear. I get to write a family gossip number and I get to shine a spotlight on the characters that aren't gonna get their own songs. Yeah. Um, And that was joyous work.
1: Yeah. You know, in the summer of 2020, I hit a career highlight, Lynn. I was able to sit down with you and your Hamilton cast for that Disney Plus special. And in that interview, I want to remind you, Renee Elise Goldsberry and Jasmine Cephas Jones, they talked about hearing parts and pieces of a song like Satisfied and then thinking it can't, possibly get better than this and that's okay i'm still down for it but then it does get better and 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 they talked about how you struggled to write the end of hamilton and then you delivered and then some what happens in those moments where you push yourself just that much further and you blow everyone's expectations away
2: well, it's pretty touch and go until, you know, it's it's like climbing a mountain. It's uh, it feels impossible until it's done. Yeah. Um and and those ladies know better than almost anybody because we went into rehearsal without a dual number. I didn't have it yet. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm also an actor like them. So my time to write is severely limited because I'm learning the choreography for Satisfied too. And it's hard. So I also have to go off and, and, and rehearse and learn everything. Um, it's, it's funny you bring up the, the finale of, of Hamilton because that was one where Tommy Kail really manifested it. He called the shot for me because mm. I was just like, I don't have enough bandwidth at the end of the day mm. to figure this out after we're dancing and sweating all day and he said you know what it's gonna be a new year's day baby and i went what do you mean by that he goes new year's day is the only day on our schedule where you don't have anything going on and it's going to come to you wow um and i was like all right incredibly nervous as we're continuing to uh rehearse the piece without an ending Mm. and then new year's eve happens and the new year's morning rolls around and My son, my oldest son was born two weeks into rehearsals, so I'm already not sleeping and learning this. And I woke up and my son was asleep on my chest. I must've changed him and just brought him right back into bed around three or four in the morning. And my dog is in the bed between me and my wife, and it is as quiet as I remember it ever being in my life. And I remember thinking, oh, this is the one move we haven't played in the show. Wow. We haven't had a moment of quiet. We have been going nonstop music and lyrics the whole time. That's what it has to be. Um, and I put the baby with my wife and I walked my dog in the park and I wrote the entire closing monologue, just circling Washington Heights, uh, talking to myself until it was written. It was Tommy called it and it was the last it was the last move. <laughs> it was the only thing we hadn't done in the show. Wow. And that that's what cracked it.
1: Wow, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that story. Um, For everyone else out there paying attention to your career, you collecting an Oscar win this season would make you an EGOT winner. That's an Emmy, a Grammy and an Oscar and a Tony for everyone out there listening to this conversation. And that is the very definition of achievement. But for you, how do you measure success at this point in your career again? because everything you do gets talked about in a very specific conversation of, of achievement.
2: Well, it's a stat. <laughs> it's a cool stat. Maybe, the, you know, everyone in that club is pretty amazing. I think of John Legend and Rita Moreno and Marvin Hamlisch. Like, that's a cool club. Yeah. Um, I, that's That, I think, is the most sort of thrilling and intimidating part of it is those are all I'm listing heroes mm-hmm. uh, as I list those names to you. Uh, but for me, um, you know, I, I think that the the most important thing for me to do is when those nominations or whatever comes is stay a student. Um, and realize I'm still getting started. I still have so much to learn um, and try to get myself in rooms where I am a student and I'm working with someone who who's, you know, who knows something I don't know. you know, that's that's what I see as my next step as a songwriter is get in the room with other songwriters who are
4: completely
2: different from me and vibe and see how they approach the piano or how they approach the computer. I'm just trying to get outside of my own habits. Um, but I'm really, really looking to the next time I sit at a piano come at it in a totally different direction um that's that's sort of what's exciting to me can I can I write something and people don't go oh that's Lynn uh I want them to go who wrote this that that that's an exciting sort of thing to work for work toward for my next work
1: I want to I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, I was able to sit through uh, a come back to the movies preview before In the Heights was released. And when I saw that 11 minute preview, that was the film that made me want to go back and have that communal experience. What surprised me, and I don't know if it surprised you, was that you did get some pushback. For not having darker skinned Afro-Latinos in that film. And you acknowledge that the film fell short and you promised to do better and honor the beautiful diversity of the Latin community. But did that conversation, a pushback, surprise you?
2: No, I wasn't I wasn't surprised because I think that conversation um, was already happening in our community. We were already having that conversation as Latinos, our privilege as light-skinned Latinos, our responsibility to broaden those opportunities and you know our conversations. Uh, I think about that. We're we're so thoughtful and, you know, you see good takes and bad takes, but I also knew that I was Also going to release VIVO, which has amazing Afro-Latino representation. Encanto, which has wonderful, you know, an incredibly beautifully diverse uh, family all under one roof. And I, so I I, I absolutely wanted to acknowledge that there were strides that we could make. But it also, you know, I I heard from so many of my Afro-Latino friends being like, because you get to make these strides, we're going to ask for this and we're going to continue to ask for you to to lift us all up. And I I really take that responsibility uh, seriously.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, my, my grandmother used to say that I was the fly in the churn of buttermilk. And if you're not familiar with that phrase, she was saying that I was this lone speck of otherness in this sea of whiteness mm. that I always stood out and that people always knew when I was in the room. The challenge for me was that What was I going to do when I got in the room? And I'd imagine that you feel that you are the authoritative representative voice for the Latino community, um, and with great power comes great responsibility. Tell me about that.
2: 100% and what's interesting is I got here out of the same fear that I wouldn't be allowed in the room as anybody else. You know, I Uh wanted a life in musical theater, we have West Side Story and a couple of parts in chorus line, and for Puerto Rican dudes, that's it. And so I really began writing in the Heights as a way of creating what I saw as missing. And then when you do that, you realize that's really what making art is. Mm-hmm. What doesn't exist in the world but should? Um, and what are you uniquely sort of suited to, to, to put into the world? And again, the byproduct of of, again, in the Heights is the least likely success story of all time. You know, we were all first timers um, to Broadway, um, sort of on the creative side. We had a ton of Broadway debuts with our incredible Latino cast, mm. and um, and the fact that we were able to get as as far as we did is 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 miraculous. Um, and so the but the beautiful byproduct of that was, you know, having folks come up to me being like. I work steadily as a Piragua guy in regional productions all over the United States. Um, and Piragua guy is the reason I have an equity card yeah. and the many roles um, that that was able to provide. And so when that's your first success, then you take it really, you know, you take really seriously the responsibility of every piece of work you make is an opportunity to open doors.
1: Yeah. Where do you find inspiration from?
2: Oh, everything. But for me, um, you know, my inspiration more often than not is just my kids. I, I have two incredibly smart and brilliant and creative kids who... And who knows if they would be doing this if I didn't do what I do for a living, but they make up songs that just blow me away. Um, So And they're invariably about breakfast. So we have an amazing song about chocolate crepes that Sebastian wrote. We have an amazing song about Cheerios that my my four-year-old Frankie wrote last week. And when they like it enough to keep singing it, we record it and we figure it out at the piano and we keep it moving.
1: You've got to be kidding me. I love that. Can we get... A, a slice of what the breakfast song sounds like or the Cheerios song sounds like is that that's something you can give us <laughs>
2: um well chocolate crepes had this beautiful ascending line that just kind of went up and up it was like chocolate crepes chocolate crepes chocolate crepes and it was just like oh my, you're going into augmented chords here to support it um but <laughs> and uh and then i think the cheerios song was was more of a rock tune that Frankie made up it was it was you got one you got one you got one in your tummy <laughs> and it went on from there as he was just kind of cheerio at a time getting through breakfast
1: I love that I, I also love that I that I read that um you have tested out some of your material some of your songs on your children what was their first impression of of Encanto what did they tell you about it
2: Oh, more often than not, they just hear me writing it and then Mm -hmm. they just start humming it to themselves. I'm working on a new song that I was working on last week. And Sebastian came home, I was so proud. Uh, He came home and said, ''Daddy, that one's catchy, I almost sang it at school.'' Um, Which he knows he's not allowed to do yet. (laughs) Because, you know, we've had the NDA for toddlers conversation, which is, you know, we can't sing that song until the 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 thing that that's attached to is out in the world and your friends have a chance to, to hear it. So, you know, they were singing Bruno a year and a half ago. Um, wow. But... But, but it's always interesting to see what they kind of uh, plug into. When I was editing Tick, Tick, Boom, um, they were really plugged into those songs. So They were singing, I feel bad that you feel bad that I feel bad that you feel bad, um, and uh, this is the life, bo 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 bo. They were really into Jonathan Larson while I was telling his story.
1: You know, speaking of Jonathan Larson, um, I know that he was a hero of yours and obviously he tragically died before this work got into the world um, cinematically. Um, Why were you moved to tell this story and do it right now?
2: Yeah, well, Jonathan was the gateway for me. He was the gateway between loving musicals and thinking I could write a musical. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, I saw Rent for my 17th birthday from the last row of the mezzanine of the Nederlander Theater. And um, it was the most diverse cast I'd ever seen in a show ever. I was like, oh, that's what New York actually looks like. Um, And so being thrilled by how contemporary it felt and not just how it looked, but how it sounded. Um, And you could tell that Jonathan was writing about this community that he cared about, uh, grappling with the AIDS crisis, grappling with, you know, affording to live in New York. We're hungry and frozen, life And it's a very short line from him writing about his community to me writing about my community, you know, 200 blocks north of him. Um, And that was when I understood I had a story to tell. Um, And so his loss compounds that, because in a fairer world, he's 62 years old and he's talking to you about his 13th musical. Uh, But all we have really is Tick, Tick, Boom uh, and Rent. And and then the other question that it hit me when I saw the show at age 21 was, are you okay with doing this if the world doesn't notice while you're alive? Because they didn't Mm -hmm. notice while Jonathan was alive. So, are you okay with doing this if no one ever notices what you do? If you're Vincent van Gogh and you paint these paintings and nothing happens, you never see the success of them? Um, which again, gets back to your EGOT question. I would be doing this if I was still teaching at Hunter, um, because I, I was faced with that question by Jonathan's work.
1: Mm, wow. You know, it's not that I'm a name dropper, Lynn, manuel Miranda, but I just spoke with Steven Spielberg and his White Whale was doing a musical and obviously he eventually did West Side Story. Is there a project that you're afraid of um, that maybe you might wanna do one of these days?
2: Yeah, I feel like I'm only chasing things I'm afraid of. I think that's the best way to learn. I was lucky enough to visit that West Side Story set for a couple of hours. Uh, They Mm -hmm. were filming on 177th Street while we were on 175th street uh, and I, I snuck over, I had a friend on that sh- on that movie and I snuck over and I got to talk to him for like two minutes. And what was exciting was, it was exactly what I was saying to you was, he was like, I feel like I have to learn filmmaking from scratch to tell a musical. And he was showing mm-hmm. me like his drafts of the scene he was shooting that he shot on his iPhone. And what's the best way to get at it and get into it. Um, and again, like that, that Spielberg who is, you know, who I wanted to be when I grew up, even before I understood what a director did, is still approaching the craft in the spirit of a student, um, is very inspiring.
1: Yeah. You know, one day this inevitably is going to happen. Someone is going to make a musical about you. And when that <laughs> happens, what would you clarify, you know, in your own story? What's something you would love to to definitely be part of this?
2: Ooh. Oh, man. Um... I think it would actually be not unlike um, sort of the, the final takeaway in, in Hamilton is that, you know, why, uh, my wife makes me an infinitely better person and infinitely better artist uh, than I was before I met her. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the ways in which she lets me prioritize uh, what I'm making uh, and makes space and makes room for that is endlessly inspiring. Um, the ways she chases her own goals. I, when I met her, she was a scientist. And then she said, I'm going down to law. <laughs> went, OK, science seemed pretty hard, but get after it. Um, <laughs> I'm inspired by her work ethic and her kind of relentless curiosity. Um, and and yeah, and my life with her has made me an infinitely better artist. Um, so that's, that's the more interesting part than the particulars of me sitting at a piano.
1: Yeah. Lynn, before I let you go, if you could jump into a DeLorean and go back into time to that 17-year-old that was sitting in the back row at the Nederlander Theater watching Rent, what would you tell him? You know, Knowing all the things that you've been able to do over the course of your career thus far, what's the thing you would go back and tell that kid?
2: Oh, well, first of all, I would say Appreciate Meredith Somerville, your high school girlfriend, who got you these tickets. <laughs> you know, facts. Um, and and when the time comes for that relationship to end, the world is big. You know, it's that that thing of uh, that 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 first love being like the biggest thing in the world and the biggest deal. And just, um, I, I think I would I would just tell him to relax and soak it in and and let him know life's not short it's long and enjoy it a little more
1: <laughs> yeah that sounds like solid advice lynn it is always a treat to talk to you thank you i really appreciate that continued success and i'm i'm l- listen egot maybe maybe let's make it happen let's make it happen let's make listen it, got... we're gonna
2: dress up we're gonna go to a party everything else is gravy
1: that, there you go i love that i love that thank you so much lynn Lynn manuel Miranda shouting out the high school girlfriend. And you know what? Why not? Because it kind of changed the course of his life. Can't say the same for my high school boyfriend, but we are still Facebook friends. Uh, That was all cool. But after the break, two of my Hollywood Reporter pals who've been watching and listening to Lynn since the early days are going to break down his latest award-winning work. And we're going to get into some Hollywood news, including the SAG Awards. That's after the break. Like we always do at this time, I want to welcome in my group chat buddies to dissect Lin-Manuel Miranda, but also we're going to talk about the politicking of award show campaigns and where we are right now. And of course, some of those moments out of the SAG Awards. Today, I've got entertainment contributor for ABC News Audio, Matt Wolf, and my girl, Culture and Entertainment International correspondent for a number of great Brazilian outlets, Miriam Spritzer. Welcome, guys. Hi, it's good to be here. It's good to have you guys here with me. I want to dive right in because obviously we're talking Lin-Manuel Miranda. Tick, Tick, Boom is his first feature film, and it's his first time out the gate, and it is getting nominated for Oscars. How did he do? Should he keep directing? Is he going to direct some more? What did you think about this, Matt?
4: Yeah, Kelly, listen, Tick, Tick, Boom was a great film. Now it it wasn't a perfect film, mind you, but yeah, you know, after watching it and watching Andrew Garfield, just, just nail Jonathan Larson, Mm. because this is Lin-Manuel Miranda we're talking about. He knows the importance of a person like Jonathan Larson, because without Jonathan Larson, you don't have a lot of the modern day musical feels to things like Hamilton or Dear Evan Hansen. You can listen to those Mm. soundtracks and trace them all back to to Rent. And that's the beauty of musical theater, right? It builds on each, you know, whether it's an Andrew Lloyd Webber, whether it's a Stephen Sondheim, whether it's a Lin-Manuel Miranda, they all sort of feed off each other.
1: What about you, Miriam? I mean, what do you think about him as a director?
0: Look, I don't think anyone else could have directed Tick, Tick, Boom with the same sensibility as he did. And yeah. I agree with you with what Matt said. It's not the perfect film, but for me it was perfect. Like, I cannot think of mm-hmm. one thing that I would have done differently knowing the original play and then now looking at the at the film version. And even like the little Easter eggs during the film for the Hats, for the big fans of Jonathan Larson, for the big musical theater fans.
4: John, Steve Sondheim here. I didn't get a chance to speak with you after the reading, but I just wanted to say it was really good. Congratulations.
0: That was something that only he could have realized to do. Like, I don't think that a director, even if you take like Steven Spielberg, who did an amazing job with West Side Story, I don't think he would have had that little theater fan type of feel. So I do do think that I would love to see what Lin-Manuel would have done in a film that is not a musical, out of curiosity, to actually see how he would have directed a film, you know, as we call it a straight play so like a straight film but i think as far as the musical goes he nailed the storytelling and he nailed how to film it in a way that capture what it was on stage and then capture what it would have been, you know, the everyday life of those characters, you know, in their lives.
4: And just one more thing here if I could. Nothing. And I mean nothing in the world you guys will prepare you if you ever go back to the Sopranos, okay? In season 6, episode 15, titled Remember When, for 30 seconds you see Lin Manuel Miranda come out as a bellboy at a hotel and inter- and interact with James Gandolfini. Stop. Miriam, you know what I'm talking about? Have you seen it? Of course. Oh, my God.
0: (laughs) And and he actually does a small role on Modern Family that the way that the family gets the dog, uh, Sophia, I think the name of the dog is. Are you aware that last year,
2: Americans spent 40 billion dollars on dog training. Well, that's not true.
0: I was surprised, as you are. He is also the one that owns it, and he's like a cousin or friends with Gloria.
4: Listen, I I hate to interrupt your big pitch, but your dog is chewing my pillow. Fantastic.
0: So he's he's been out there. He's been doing pretty much everything that you can imagine, both on screen and on stage.
4: Exactly. You guys
1: are killing me. I am literally the head exploding emoji right now. I'm going to go watch. That episode is Sopranos because I love that show. Um, wow. So, Lynn, he's he's been in our lives for a long time. Maybe if we didn't know, he was in our lives for a long time. But you know what? Let's switch gears here. The Oscars show setup changes are happening and people are upset about them. Let's talk about what that actually means. They're changing it where certain categories are not going to be announced live in the telecast. They're gonna be um presented, I guess, later throughout the show. And they're doing this because they wanna have more performances. Some of the affected categories are film editing, makeup and hairstyling, original score, animated short, and live action short. What are I love comments?
0: that everyone is like upset or in the hype for absolutely everything. There is no like middle ground now. Yeah. No, but none. It, but the Oscars, I think, you know what, they have to try everything. I think the uh, the, the ratings have been low in most yeah. live things for a while, not just the Oscar, not just the awards, even the sports. So they have to try it. I think at this point they'll do it this year. And if it doesn't work out, they'll go back to the normal next year. I think it's a shame because I do love films. I love those technical awards. I mm-hmm. care less about the performances that I do about the speeches. So for me, it's a shame. But at the end of the day, I just want them to do it. Have a great time. I want to see the stars all dressed up. I want to see all that glamour and glitz that Hollywood does. And then we'll go back to watching films, you know, so I think they should try it. And, and I don't get the the anger from
1: the audience that much. <laughs> what about you, Matt? Do you, do you understand the anger of not being able to see who's gonna win, you know, best animated short live in the telecast?
4: Oh, I get the flame-on feeling, believe me, if you know what I'm (laughs) saying, all right? But when you look at these categories, documentary short, film editing, makeup, hairstyling, original score, you know— the mainstream audience doesn't think much of it, but these are crucial, crucial categories. Yeah. Because if you think about things like without great makeup and hairstyling, you never get the richness and opulence of a movie like Amadeus, which won in 1984, Ooh. which is essential to yeah. storytelling. Okay, editing. Um, you guys both know that's where the real magic happens. You know, in post, you yeah. taking all these hours of film, stringing them together with great editors like Neil Trask who did Dances with Wolves and won that, okay? And you have that, you don't get the gut punch of Schindler's List without Michael Kahn. You know, you see where I'm getting here? So these are very crucial, in my opinion, crucial, crucial categories.
1: I agree, and I'll also add to that, I think the reason why it was probably easier for them to focus on those categories is it's where the glitz and glamor doesn't happen. You know, the most famous people are not in those categories, with the exception Of two years back-to-back, an animated short, you have Kobe Bryant, who wins his first Oscar, and that was a moment for so many reasons, and then the next year, Matthew Cherry wins in that same category, and we would have missed out on seeing a Kobe Bryant speech had we not done that. Speaking of speeches, welcome back, political speeches, to the award shows we have missed you we have missed you, and I think we're going to get it. We certainly saw that at the SAG Awards recently, you know, Michael Keaton gave a very um, impassioned, beautiful speech, dedicating his award for Dope Sick to his nephew and people obviously taking to the stage to talk about what's happening in Ukraine.
4: And also for those people, the people in Russia who don't like what's going on, and particularly the artists. And I think we should really join in celebrating them and hoping that they can actually make a shift.
1: Talk to me about that, because that also feels a very important part of what we are used to getting culturally from these award shows leading up to the Oscars, the granddaddy of them all. Miriam, what are your thoughts? So one of the things that they were uh, that people
0: in the Oscars were saying that was affecting the ratings were all the political speeches. But I also don't think that at this point in the moment we're currently leaving with post pandemic almost and then now a possible third world war you know chaos i don't think that this is the time that the industry should be quiet because art does make a difference like now we're seeing all these european festivals for example saying no to russian films so i Mm. do think that given the moment like the SAG Awards was just this sunday it was right as these things are coming to action so it was impossible not to address what was happening I think that this is something that's going to stay throughout the award season, unfortunately. And fortunately mm-hmm. for those that love that speech, the, the, these type of speeches that move and they come from the heart. So, for those that don't like the political motivational speech, well, then you know they're going to skip the awards again
1: this year and then come back next year. Who knows? It's it's Who a knows? tricky year for anything. <laughs> Absolutely, I totally agree with you, Matt. I want to talk about the SAG Awards a little bit more because Coda came out here cleaning up cleaning up when people thought it was going to be these bigger productions that were going to get up on stage talk to me about that because that's a surprise
4: and along came Coda is what it should be right (laughs) (laughs) you know I tell you Kelly like you I love a little chaos in the mix I love it and don't get me wrong I loved Belfast okay I loved all these other movies but I watched finally watched Coda a couple of weeks ago and I'm like there is something so intimate Mm. and so personal about this
0: you were the girl with the deaf family Yeah. yeah And you sing. Interesting.
4: You have all these great actors, and you see in this category, Best Supporting Actor. I mean, listen to these names here. Bradley Cooper, Jared Leto, Ben Affleck, Cody Smith-McPhee. And now it's all about Troy Kutzer, who won the other night for Best Supporting Actor, nominated for a BAFTA 2, and now an Oscar. This is like a wave, guys. I am telling you right now, and I don't know if it's going to stop with the critics' choice with the BAFTAs, and I think... He's going to make history again in a few weeks with the Academy.
1: Okay. Okay. That said, I think we are going to see some big names be called as we cycle through the end of award season. Will Smith, Jessica Chastain. I think they're going to ride this uh, best actor, best actress way about until the very end. What do you think, Miriam?
0: I agree with you. I think, I think Jessica Chastain pretty much proves herself this year uh, as one of the best actresses. I think the votes are just going because we love her and, We don't care what role she's playing
4: you know when i saw that clipping with my face on it i thought for
3: a second that you were proud of me i'm hearing there are articles like this in the paper every day
4: the secular press hates us because we're winning millions of souls
0: for jesus
3: oh tammy Faye.
0: i am curious to see if kristen stewart is going to make jessica cheston run for her money but Mm. uh it's gonna Mm. be you know with kristen stewart because she doesn't campaign because she doesn't do a lot of press she doesn't come across as friendly to get the votes as as Jessica Chastain so that we know that there is a lot of politics within the voting system. So that will come across in the results. But I'm very curious to see how many surprises we're going to see by the end of March with the Oscars or, you know,
1: if it's going to end up being the same things that we're seeing over and over. Ah, It's so exciting. And if you've been listening to this podcast since we launched, then hearing what Miriam just said is not a surprise to you at all. It's all political, it's all about campaigning, and we cannot wait to see how this whole thing ends up. Matt Wolf, Miriam Spritzer, thank you guys so much for joining me on this episode. I do appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate you, Kelly. Thank you guys. Next time on Close Up, Corey Hawkins, the guy who starred in 24 and Straight Out of Compton, still gets awestruck and starstruck working on movies like his latest, Tragedy of Macbeth.
4: To be directed by a Cohen, like like
0: literally Joel Cohen in his mind, his mastery. I was just like, I'm literally the luckiest guy in the world And, and I better have my stuff together. I better come correct.
1: Corey tells me what it was like fighting for a role that let him work with stars like Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand and doing Shakespeare in a modern race-blind way.
4: The simple act, the subversive act of us getting in a room and doing it together is is says enough that we don't have to go and
1: qualify it. That's next time on Close Up. Thank you for hanging out with me these last few episodes. I really hope that you like what you've been hearing and learning. And if you do, please rate and review the show and follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any future episodes. Close Up is a production of ABC Audio. It's produced by Bika Aronson, Carrie Ann Thomas, and David Toledo with help from Josh Cohan, Brenda Salinas Baker, Arielle Chester, Mary Pat Thompson, Elizabeth Russo, and Stacia Deshishku. Lakia Brown is our senior producer, and Liz Alessi is our executive producer. Talk soon. ABC Audio is a division of The Walt Disney Company.